1: We're here in Oklahoma City for another show that we're recording at the venue of the National Indian Health Board's meeting. We have experts from all over the country, and it's a great opportunity for us to speak to people who are making a difference in Indian country wherever they are. Across from me right now in our booth area is Charles Hauser. Dr. Hauser is with the company called Orasure Technologies. It's great to have you with us, Charles. Thank you. Now, AuraSure is a household name, I'm sure, to many people. But I will be honest with you, until I showed up here in Oklahoma City, I had not heard of you guys. So there might be a few other people out there tuning in who say, "OraSure is this a dental company? Tell us. Well, it got its name
2: because uh, we were the leaders in uh, rapid antibody testing
1: using saliva. Oh. So there goes the Ora. Now, this is exciting because most people, when they think of doing testing antibodies, we usually think of blood. Maybe you're checking for someone who'd been exposed to to syphilis, or maybe they even you're checking for some kind of uh, disease that's making the rounds in the community. But normally people are thinking they're going to get stuck, and sometimes that's a deterrent from being tested. Isn't that right? It can be.
2: And especially in some groups, like folks who are in recovery, you know, maybe mm-hmm. they've had trouble with needles in the past, and they don't like uh, they don't like to be stuck again.
1: No, I mean this is a great point. So people that whether they've been in the intensive care unit a lot, whether they've used their own veins with uh, various practices, the veins can be in pretty bad shape, and it can be hard to get blood, can't it? Yes. So you're saying that for the tests that you do, you can get as accurate a reading from saliva as you could from blood. Correct. So what kind of tests would we be talking about?
2: We were the first uh, rapid antibody test for uh, HIV. Wow. Uh, And uh, we developed a test back in the 90s, and up until that point there had to be blood draws and automation Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and sometimes up to a week uh, lag time for a test result with uh, the antibodies. And uh, we uh, use Ig. G and IgM, but particularly with IgM, we can detect uh, HIV antibodies in 18 days
1: after exposure. Wow. So for those who don't know much about immunology, tell me if, if uh, my quick take on this is correct. So when we're exposed to some kind of organism and the body is fighting it, It first makes an immunoglobulin, this protein we call it IgM, right? Correct. And then later on, we tend to make IgG that gives more long-term protection, right? Correct. So IgM would usually be the first thing that would rise. Correct. And you're saying, in the old days, we used to say, "Hey, you know, three months maybe if you've been exposed to HIV, we're not, you know, we can't pick it up in that window." But you're saying in as little as 18 days now with this IgM technique without any blood you can tell with a high degree of accuracy that someone is HIV very positive high
2: 99.5 percent really based on just a swab around the mouth less than five seconds uh very very sensitive
1: so five seconds to get the swab how long does it take to run the test 20 minutes 20 minutes So you can do this right in a a tribal clinic, you can do it in a doctor's office, is that right?
2: Uh, Absolutely, and one doesn't even have to be a medical technician to do the test. Mm. So we can certify uh, harm reduction workers Mm -hmm. who maybe have a uh, naloxone, needle exchange, wound care, uh, mobile van that's taking uh, the services to people who need those services. Mm-hmm. They can do the testing right out of the back of the van. Wow! Uh, you can do it as a senior citizen's uh, meeting place, and um, you don't have to be an MA or an LPN or an RN to run the test. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, that's great. Now, a lot of people say, well, I mean, here's a guy talking about a a testing service. I mean, he's probably a businessman and really doesn't know much about the science. It sounds like he's holding his own, but... I introduced you as doctor, and there's a lot of doctors, different kind of doctors, different kind of doctorates. Tell us a little bit about your background.
2: Well, I went to the United States Naval Academy and the uh, military's medical school. I had a lot of public health and preventive medicine in those settings, but I chose to do preventive medicine as my residency, and I got a master's in public health at University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and then finished my residency training at uh, Duke and the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia.
1: Okay. So basically you have an MD, a medical doctor's degree, as well as an MPH, a master's in public health. Correct. So really you come at this, I would say, from a pretty unique perspective, at least for many people that represent testing companies. I mean, they may have had a med tech background. They may uh, but. Clinical background—I don't find a lot of folks like you in the field. Is that just my narrow exposure? Are there a lot of physicians no, running I, around doing what you're doing?
2: I think more and more there's been a little bit of burnout.
1: Okay, fair enough. And fair enough. you have
2: folks who maybe practice for fifteen to twenty years, mm-hmm. and then they want to do something else. Fair enough. You know, in, in my background, I recently—I spent four years in Pennsylvania at the Department of Health as an epidemiologist in the Infectious Disease Epidemiology Uh Branch, and uh, my focus was on uh, viral hepatitis.
1: Wow. Yeah, I enjoyed, I, I did a little, I have an MPH as well, I know you know that, but I actually did some of my work actually here in Oklahoma with the Oklahoma State Department of Health and enjoyed sitting in in those epidemiology meetings. For those of you who are wondering what these two doctors are talking about, epidemiology literally refers to that which comes upon people. It's the science that looks at, you know, disease and risk factors and things like that. So you'd be looking, I'm I'm sure if there's some cases of hepatitis, you'd be trying to find out maybe where those people got it from. Are they at risk of transmitting it? Sure.
2: We look at clusters and outbreaks. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're looking at transmission Uh, We're certainly interested in prevention. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we we look at surveillance as informing us how to prevent.
1: Excellent. So you've got this rich background. Now you take it to Orassure. It's a publicly traded company, do I understand that correctly? And you're here at this native venue because you've been doing a lot of work with tribes, is that right? Or are you want to reach out more and do more in Indian country?
2: I'm fairly new. Mm-hmm. I started in January, moved to Dallas. Okay. Uh, my area, for the most part, comprises most of the West, mm-hmm. um, and I've always seen Native Americans as a segment or a group that um, had has needs, not unlike. You know working in an urban area there's certain groups that are more vulnerable than others uh-huh. uh, either related to uh socioeconomic uh considerations or maybe it's space and travel and lack of resources mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and you know i I did some work uh, looking at rates uh and uh the the uh, best numbers that I could find is that a Native American has uh, five times the risk of a uh, of a white Caucasian male of having hepatitis C, and that the risk of uh, having HIV is twice that of a, uh, a Caucasian uh, male in North America. Um, so I see that screening disparity, and you know. Um, I've looked at the recent work that the Cherokee did with the CDC Mm -hmm. where they screened 23,000 members uh, from 2013 to 2015 and found 400 reactive cases for hepatitis C of which 300 uh, had viral loads. And they were able to uh, treat those folks. Mm -hmm. So we're at a point now with the new hepatitis C meds that if we can identify those folks who have the disease, we can cure it. And it's tough without a vaccine, but uh, the potential is there for elimination strategies in certain jurisdictions, and certainly Native Americans are disproportionately affected mm-hmm. uh, by both hepatitis C and HIV.
1: So now, does your company also have oral technologies for demonstrate? demonstrating a uh, hepatitis C uh, infection the
2: answer to that is yes but uh-huh. uh we never went through the FDA for approval oh, okay so it still takes a tiny finger stick like uh, someone's checking their sugar uh-huh and one drop of blood and still a 20 minute uh uh, wait, uh, for the oh, test. Okay, okay. Uh, overseas, uh, about everywhere else in the world, they can use saliva, but, uh, mm-hmm. we never took the test through the FDA requirements. But and that's a very
1: expensive process and all. And it was. But
2: the nice thing is, is with those two tests, particularly mm-hmm. in areas, jurisdictions that have Uh, infection or uh, intravenous drug use problems with opiates or Mm -hmm. um, heroin or methamphetamine, Uh, the prevalence in those using groups is pretty high for hepatitis C particularly if you don't have clean needles and clean works. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, Hep C tends to, it's probably 10 times more infective than HIV is, so it's much easier to get with a much lower dose. Okay. And uh, we find the prevalence or the percentage of people in that population uh, who have hepatitis C is very high, Mm -hmm. anywhere from 30 to 50%. Really? So the longer people share... Uh-huh. The higher the risk is, they'll get that disease. So the the nice thing is, is those uh, risk pools overlap. In other words, there's a lot of the same risk factors for hepatitis C as what there is for HIV. Mm-hmm. So we encourage people in those settings certainly to do both tests. So what's nice is you can do one finger prick and get separate loops from that one mm-hmm. stick and do both the tests at one time. So just a little prick. Just a little prick, and you can have both results within a 20-minute period.
1: Wow. So really part of the way of controlling these diseases in any population, whether we're talking about a native population or a non-native population, is first identifying it.
2: Absolutely. Awareness, identification is crucial, and we've seen this with the HIV epidemic. Mm Mm-hmm. 10 years ago, the number one cause or one of the biggest causes of the new cases were IVDU or intravenous drug use. That's dropped uh, significantly over the last 10 years. Mm -hmm. There's been a resurgence of that, though, with the opioid uh, epidemic Mm -hmm. in particular. Um, But given the fact that HIV is harder to transmit, Uh, plus we see people who know their status. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Ninety percent of folks living with HIV know their status today. Mm -hmm. And they take steps to avoid transmission. Mm -hmm. Uh, If they're sharing equipment, they do what's typically called serosorting. You know, they may not necessarily tell you their status, but they'll say, you don't want to share with me, Mm -hmm. or I need to go last. Mm -hmm. Um, And what we've seen is a significant decrease in the number Mm -hmm. of of those cases uh, from people who inject drugs, but you have to have that knowledge before you can make those choices. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the same with with hepatitis C. You know, we we encourage folks who get into recovery to to definitely get checked because it may be one of those consequences of your using injectable drugs. Mm-hmm. But we can cure you today, so right, if you're able right. to get clean and abstinent you can really get clean naps and uh, getting your uh, hepatitis C cured as well.
1: So we've talked about hepatitis C. We've talked about HIV. Are these the two tests, you know, immunologic tests, that you're especially promoting here, or are there other infectious diseases that uh, you think are especially relevant in Indian country or anywhere for that matter?
2: We also have a quick flu test, uh, which is interesting in that The FDA pulled about three-quarters of the uh, flu tests, the outpatient flu tests, off the market in January Hmm. because they weren't sensitive or specific enough, plus uh, a good number of those weren't even testing for the prominent serotypes of that flu season. Hmm. So there's only about three or four tests now that have been approved by the FDA, ours Went through the first time without any issues. Wonderful. It was doing fine then. and uh, So that's uh, another one that we offer. But our company in general is, uh, we've had several government um, contracts for things like Ebola okay. and emerging infectious diseases. Wow, great. As
1: well. well, it sounds like you guys are doing great stuff, Dr. Hauser. If someone wants to learn more about Orasure, do you have a contact point for them?
2: Yes, go to www.orashure.com. Or you can email me at C-H-O-W-S-A-R-E at com.
1: Okay, so if you can remember Orashure, O-R-A-S-U-R-E, that's the way to get a hold of Charles and others with Orasure technologies. we got to step away. We'll be back with more on today's edition of American Indian Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose. Don't go away.
0: Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE, 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose.
1: Welcome back to American Indian Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose. We are continuing a series of shows here at the National Tribal Health Conference. It's a conference sponsored by the National Indian Health Board. We're here in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. And across from me, my guest for this segment is Garricka Bateman. Garricka, it's great to have you with us.
3: Nice to be here. Thank you.
1: Garricka, I know you're doing some exciting stuff. And the reason I know that is because one of my colleagues working across the way at the health screening said, you've got to interview Garricka Bateman. And I said, well, who is this? He told me she is the diabetes program manager for the Muscogee Creek Nation. Is that all true? That is true. So what does that mean? What does that all involve?
3: Well, I manage a diabetes program for our tribe. We have um, five clinics and two hospitals. In the five clinics we have a diabetes team for um treating di or managing diabetes and also um, preventing diabetes.
1: Wow, so you have five clinics and two hospitals? Yes. I mean and that- a rehab center. That's a big big responsibility.
3: Yes, our <laughs> tribe manages it well. <laughs>
1: So, you are over the diabetes work throughout the tribe in these various venues, and also in the community because you're involved with prevention. Yes. So, give us a picture for what happens at the clinic level. You have five different teams at every clinic, or is one team traveling? One team at each clinic. Yes, one so team five each. teams. So, tell us what that looks like. What are they doing? What are they they looking for?
3: Sure. Um, each team consists of a clerk, um, a nurse educator, a nurse case manager a dietitian, and an exercise coordinator. So um, our dietitians see patients who have diabetes and those who are at risk for diabetes. Um, they see pediatrics, geriatrics. Um, our nurses primarily see type 2 diabetics and some type 1s, um, and they also teach a hypertension class. Oh, wow. Um, our exercise coordinators work a lot in the community, so they do a lot on our prevention side. And they also offer us helpful tips for um, physical activity for those who have diabetes in our um, education courses.
1: Wow. So this is impressive. Now, I don't know if you've been to the booth across the way. So just for those of you who are listening to this show and have not actually been in the venue where we're at, of course, this is a pre-recorded show. We're recording it in September of 2018. But across the way, we have some free resources that deal with diabetes and high blood pressure and mental health, and those are available to Native health professionals uh, in their work. So if you or any members of your team want those resources, just feel free to sign up. And if you're a listener and uh, you've maybe heard us mention some of these resources, we have our book, 30 Days to Natural Blood Pressure Control, as well as uh, Reversing Hypertension Naturally, DVD, Listening to the Buffalo, Changing Bad Habits for Good, a number of DVD titles That are used in different uh, clinics and and settings. If you'd like one of those, drop me an email and uh, we can get those to you. Um, Best email to use for me is Dr. DeRose, that's D R D Rose, D E R O S E, at compasshealth.net. Compass giving you direction, health.net. Well, I wasn't thinking that we'd end up talking about our resources, but you got me excited because you've got this vision that I. I've noticed a lot of tribes haven't caught this vision of how much high blood pressure and diabetes go together and how powerful it is when you address both together. Tell us a little bit about why you're doing that.
3: Well, diabetes affects the whole body. Mm-hmm. From head to toe, there is something that can be affected with uncontrolled blood sugars. Um, we know that um, patients who have diabetes are more likely to have heart attacks and strokes. Mm-hmm. So we try and... Um, treat the whole patient, to um, give them resources to control diabetes and also just control all health factors.
1: I mean, that is such a powerful message because a lot of people, when they hear diabetes, they think, oh, yeah, kidney failure, amputations, blindness, but they don't think of that big killer, cardiovascular disease, heart attack. And right up there with diabetes in that risk factor group is high blood pressure. And true with the vision, true with the kidneys too, right?
3: Right. Now we offer, um, services for all areas. So we, um, right now do the retinal scans with the Mm. JVN camera, the Optos camera. Um, we also have, um, a foot care, a diabetes foot care program. So we, um, if you're at higher risk for, um, amputation or, um, foot ulcer, then we have, um, a nurse who provides services to prevent those things. Mm. Um, we have kidney care with our dieticians, um, It's more of a um, Mm nutrition-based approach to um, lowering your kidney risk. Mm -hmm. So um, we try and treat the whole patient.
1: Wow. You're getting me excited about what you guys are doing. So let's just step back just a couple of steps. I've worked in a variety of clinical settings. Probably the most common model I've seen when it comes to diabetes education is there's diabetes educators in some of these larger clinics but they're not engaged, they're not involved with the patient until a provider makes a referral. Is that the same in your setting, or is it different? Do you actively look at who has diabetes and work with them? How does that work?
3: We do. We have a couple of different modes of... Um, contact. So, um, we actively search our records to find out who has diabetes and who has uncontrolled diabetes. Mm -hmm. So we're looking to see who's the most vulnerable in Mm -hmm. our population. And so, um, we contact them just to see if they would like to come in and and meet with us and um, get some of the services that we provide. And then of course we rely on referrals from our providers Mm who um, maybe have a new diagnosis and want us to come over and Mm -hmm. talk with the patient. and then we have some who are pre-diabetic, so we're really looking and um, we do the um, ADA screening to see who's at risk and mm-hmm. just let everybody know what your risk is. So if their score is higher than five, then um, we ask them if they'd like to come in. Um, we also have community events, so we do a diabetes awareness summit. So um, that's a chance for pa- people who have diabetes or are at risk to come in and learn more about um, what diabetes is, how to prevent it, or how to manage it.
1: Wow. How long have you been doing this as a tribe?
3: Nineteen years.
1: Nineteen years. Do you have data showing, like, whether all this effort is making a difference?
3: We do. We have um, been a recipient of the SDPI grant um, over the 19 years. And so over that time, we've noticed um, when we do the diabetes audit, that our numbers are improving. So um, more patients with diabetes are um, receiving eye exams. They're getting foot exams. um, The A1Cs are lower. Their blood Mm. pressures are lower. So um, we're seeing some positive results there.
1: Boy, this is exciting stuff. And uh, you're a registered nurse, so a lot of times when we hear about diabetes education, I mean, there's all kinds of people that are involved. You know, you've mentioned the diabetes educators. You've mentioned the Exercise specialists, of course, you know, clinicians who are, whether they're nurse practitioners, physician's assistants, or physicians, but registered nurses seem to be part of every kind of program that we deal with. Yes. And yet that trajectory is always a bit unique. How did you end up gravitating to diabetes?
3: I would say definitely, um, I feel I was called to do diabetes, Mm. um, I grew up in a family where diabetes was prevalent. Um, My grandmother's on both sides had diabetes and passed away of complications of diabetes. Um, My mother has diabetes, Um, my brother. So I have a a large family involvement with diabetes. Um, And when I was in nursing school, um, I actually had a chance to meet a diabetes educator and thought, that's what I'm supposed to do. Mm. So um, I've been working in diabetes for the last five
1: years. Okay. So five years in the field, now you're in the position of uh, diabetes program manager for the Muskogee Creek Tribe. And for those who are not familiar with the lay of the land in Oklahoma, just where would these tribal clinics and uh, hospitals be located?
3: Well, our tribal boundaries are within 11 counties, and within those 11 counties we have um, five clinic areas. So one is in Coeta, Oklahoma, one in Sapulpa; one in Eufaula, one in Okima and one in Otmolgi.
1: Okay. Now, I lived in Oklahoma for over a decade, and some of those towns uh, sound familiar. But for some people, even like myself, trying to refresh our memories, because it's been a while since I've spent much time here, we've got Oklahoma City, where we're at right now, kind of right in the center of the state. So which to right, we're headed more uh, to the east and maybe a little bit more to the south. Is that where the tribal regions are? Yes. Okay. Good, good. Well, you guys are doing a great work and you've got some great materials out here too that I picked up. You've got a booth. Uh, how is that uh, booth going? What kind of uh, dialogue are you having with folks here at the conference?
3: it's really given me an opportunity to um, talk with people who may have a diagnosis of diabetes and are maybe struggling with management. So there've been a few participants who have stopped by and just said, Hey, I'm on this medicine and I'm trying to manage my diabetes. Um, and we'll talk about maybe diet and, Mm -hmm. um, the amount of steps they're getting during the conference is important. And also there's some physical activity in the mornings, each morning of the conference. So, um, encouraging everyone to stay physically active and, um, to still watch their diet while they're on um, business trips. Uh It's kind of hard um, when you're on a business trip to eat right.
1: No, you're right. It's a challenge. I will confess to you. I don't know if it's a confession needed, Mm -hmm. but, um, I slipped away from the downtown area. Someone graciously loaned me their car. I was thinking of just, you know, using Uber and, uh, went to a grocery store. So that's one of the, the first stops I like to make when I get to a different venue. And, uh, Get some of that produce and other stuff that's uh, harder to come by in some of these downtown areas. So, yeah. yeah, but definitely it's, uh, it takes an effort sometimes to access better food sources and, uh, you know, not pay an arm and a leg at, uh, some kind of expensive buffet to get all your meals, right?
3: Absolutely. And that's one of the things that our dieticians really work hard to do is to show that it doesn't um, take a lot of money to eat healthy. Mm. Um, They currently are doing a partnership with our um, food distribution centers, and um, they're doing food demos with the uh, food that they get at the commodity center. So.
1: I know you've got a lot more to talk about. We've still got some time left in the show. Can we get you back for the next segment? Sure. Okay, we're going to step away just for a minute. I'm Dr. David DeRose. We're at the National Tribal Health Conference in Oklahoma City. We've got more to come. We've got Garricka Bateman staying by with some great diabetes insights. Don't go away. We'll be right back.
0: American Indian Living will continue in a moment. If you have questions or comments about today's pre recorded broadcast, please call 1 800 775 HOPE. That's 1 800 775 4673.
5: So, you want to be a hero? Here are some ways to get the job. Hunt down that killer shark. Or run into a burning house to save a kitten. Luckily, there's an easier way to become a hero. Call 911 if you see someone experiencing the symptoms of stroke. Sudden weakness on one side or trouble speaking, walking, or seeing. Stroke. Know the signs. Act in time. You'll be a real hero. A message from the National Institute of Neurological Disorders
4: and Stroke. Can you guess what's going on here? It's kids getting fit. Studies show that children and teens who get at least 60 minutes of physical activity a day reduce the risk of obesity, heart disease, anxiety, and increase their overall mood. So, whether it's around your neighborhood... Or at school, just get out and play. For your free booklet, visit WRInstitute.org or call toll-free 877-957-7575 and find us on Facebook and Twitter. The Will Rogers Institute since 1936.
0: You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE, 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose.
1: Welcome back to our second half of today's edition of American Indian Living. We are at the National Tribal Health Conference in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. This is an event put on by the National Indian Health Board, There are folks here from all over the country, including people from, well, next door, like the Okmulgee Creek Nation. Across from me, if you're just joining us, is someone very special, Garricka Bateman, a registered nurse and also the Diabetes Program Manager for the Muskogee Nation. It's great to have you with us.
3: Thank you. Great to be here.
1: We were talking about diabetes and some of the exciting things you're doing, and I know they're exciting because I'm getting excited. (laughs) Now, some of the folks tuning in, they say, well, this sounds a a lot like what we do at our tribal clinic. But, you know, I've found that as I travel throughout Indian country and as I interview different guests, even if people are doing a lot of things that are similar, there's always something unique that's happening. And I love what you're doing, pulling all these different resources together under one umbrella. We talked about some of those things, and we were beginning to talk more about some as uh, we had to step away for the break. But before we do any of that, I know there's folks that are going to want more information even after this segment. How does someone learn about what's happening in the uh, Muskogee Creek Nation, especially on the diabetes front?
3: Well, they can go online and visit um, creekhealth.org and um, find out about all of our programs, from diabetes to behavioral health to um, anything health-related. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm.
1: So creekhealth.org. Yes. Okay, I got it. Creekhealth.org. Let's talk a little bit about an area that we mentioned but didn't really talk much about, and that has to do with the retinal screening. I think a lot of people today in Indian country and everywhere realize that diabetes is the leading cause of blindness in adults. So that message is out there. But I still find that many people with diabetes are not getting those eye screenings You've been very proactive as a tribe with trying to help that happen. Tell us what's so, I don't want to say unique, but if we compare it with where we were, I remember even many clinics today, a doctor like myself pulls out the ophthalmoscope, you know, the little handheld device and looks in your eyes. I mean, I can get an idea of what's going on, but you're doing something that's a quantum leap beyond that. Tell us a little bit more about it.
3: We were fortunate to partner with IHS and receive a deployment of the Optos camera. So with that camera, we can have a 15-minute visit with someone, um, do a retinal imaging, send it to Phoenix and let it be read um, by professionals, and then we get a report back letting us know, hey, this patient needs to go see the optometrist or the ophthalmologist right away. So um, there's no dilation needed, and so mm-hmm. that makes it a little bit more comfortable for patients to come on in and have that done. Now, it doesn't take the place of a regular eye exam. So um, if they're needing glasses or um, follow-up, then that's something that still needs to be done. But this is um, a great tool to use to get people in and get that first image done to check for retinal damage.
1: Yeah, I mean, a lot of people have bad memories of the you know, eye drop scenario, walking out into the bright sunlight and being blinded yes. or having difficulty driving. In fact, you know, generally they're, they're told, you know, don't drive after putting those drops in. So you avoid all that. And I mean, I've seen the pictures that these can, I mean, they're amazing. I mean, you can see mm-hmm. the entire retina, the entire back of the eye, can't you?
3: Yes. it's a, a very clear picture of, um, you know, can see small changes. If we're doing it every year or every six months, then we can see gradual changes and be able to catch those early enough to where there's not permanent damage done.
1: One of the exciting things I've seen when people are being followed for their eye health is that we can actually see a reversal or improvement in those eye problems. Is that something that you have commonly seen with all that you're doing on the diabetes front?
3: We are early in the process. We, um, have had our cameras for a year, and so we haven't followed anyone longer than a year.
1: Okay. Okay. Well, it'll be interesting to, to see what you learn from that process. Yes. You told me something during the break that I found very interesting. We were speaking about how you have this comprehensive approach to, we would say, cardiovascular risk. So you're not just focused on the diabetes. You mentioned the earlier segment. You're also looking at high blood pressure. But I learned that not only are you doing diabetes and high blood pressure, you're also focused on cholesterol and triglycerides. Tell us a little bit about some of the special things you do under that umbrella.
3: Well, our dieticians and our nurses have a, um, a pretty big job. Um, what they do as far as um, cholesterol and um, high blood pressure, kidney, they look at um, the diet first and foremost, um, they want to make sure that um, what we're eating is not making things worse. Mm -hmm. They want to just get an idea of what patients eat on a daily basis and then um, focus on portion sizes. Mm -hmm. Also, just educating on the effects of food, how our body metabolizes those things and um, how it can have an adverse effect on our health.
1: You know, it's interesting to me that many times... As I attend public health meetings, we historically have talked a lot about educating people. And we're coming more and more to realize that sometimes no matter how much we educate people, they can't make those changes because of certain environmental factors, whether it's lack of access to services, whether it's uh, financial challenges you're doing some interesting things with addressing that part of the equation too, when it comes to diet, right?
3: Yes, yes. And um, we do community events where we do um, food demos. So it's taking um, what foods are readily available in the area and um, showing how to prepare those in a healthy way and a tasty way. Mm-hmm. So um, I think that's probably one of our most attended events because people want to really um, eat well and be able to prepare those things at home, but maybe just don't have the skill set or just um, the recipes to do it. So we try to offer that um, a couple of times, um, a quarter.
1: What I love about that message is a lot of people say, well, I can't make a difference as far as these big diseases that are affecting my tribe or my community or my family. And I found just what what you found, Garricka. And that is one of the most powerful things that people can do, are simple cooking classes, just teaching people how to eat more of the foods that are depicted in your brochure. Now, I'd love to have a camera and show this to all of you listening on the radio, but you know that doesn't work. But I'm looking here, and you've got a picture, and it includes everything from carrots to tomatoes to corn to squash to peppers, uh, basically all these plant foods and I notice in the description, it doesn't say here, we're going to tell you how to take your Lipitor better or um, new medications that you can take. Your focus is on lifestyle change, isn't it?
3: Yes, it is. And we try and start early. We start with our youth. We have a um, diabetes prevention camp where we have Children ages 10 to 15 come in and learn about how to start eating healthy, how to make better choices. And then um, we've noticed that they've shared that with their their family. So when we have um, the parent meeting, then um, they come back and say, well, our child told us we can't eat that for dinner because they learned in class that that's um, probably not the best choice. So um, we try uh, prevention first, and then, you know, if you already have the disease, how can we manage it better?
1: I mean, this is such a great way to reach the whole families by working with the kids. Uh, that's exciting business. Yeah, I want to talk with you about something else that we've kind of touched on indirectly because you mentioned this whole person approach. So we've talked a lot about diet. We've talked about the various screenings. We've talked about the multidisciplinary team. But we only touched on this aspect of exercise, just how important is exercise when we're talking about diabetes or pre-diabetes?
3: It's probably one of the pillars of health. Being more physically active is very important. Um, whether you have diabetes or not, moving more is is important. So not only do we focus on um, Exercise. We try and define it as moving more. Mm. So it doesn't have to be going to the gym or mm-hmm. running marathons, mm-hmm. although we do sponsor some 5Ks. Okay. Um, we have a walking program, so it's basically doing what you can do to move more. So we have um, chair exercise, Tai Chi mm. for better balance. Um, we offer um, mindful eating um, exercises. So um, there are a lot of things that we can do that a lot of people wouldn't necessarily consider exercise, but it's moving more.
1: You know, I love this picture. And one of the things that I'll just be honest with you, Gerica, that really shocked me. When we were doing the research for our book, 30 Days to Natural Blood Pressure Control, looking at the exercise research on blood pressure, because, you know, we've heard that argument that you've heard as an educator. You know, I can't do this. I don't have access to stuff. I'm in a wheelchair. I've had an amputation. And what shocked me is the research that's out there on something as simple as what we call isometric grip exercise. And just showing how, you know, using one of these little grip strength devices, a person, if they use it consistently over six, eight weeks, they can dramatically lower their blood pressure. So this whole idea of moving more, even if the movement doesn't seem to be all that much, really can pay these, I mean, I'll be honest with you, I mean, to me as a health professional, they're, they're remarkable dividends, aren't they?
3: They are. They are. Another thing um for heart health is managing stress. Mm. So um we partner with behavioral health to make sure that if someone's having difficulty with stress or depression that we get them the resources that they need. So talking with some, a specialist is important. So um that's one of the areas where we're trying to do more.
1: You know, I liked um, how you mentioned it in this uh, in this brochure. And by the way, the brochure I'm mentioning is called Diabetes Program Services. And I'm assuming they could probably download this from creekhealth.org. Is that possible?
3: No, it's not available no. online. Oh,
1: okay. Okay, so this is uh, this is one of the privileges I have of meeting Gerica in person. But they can learn about all these services online. Yes. Even though it wouldn't be in this very same yes. flyer. Well, in this flyer, though, as you're speaking about stress, I see you've got what's described here as individual or family therapy. And so often it seems when I see people who are dealing with stress, if I just talk with the patient, even for just a little bit, it almost invariably comes out that there's some issue going on with the family or the extended family or how they're addressing things is impacting their family or maybe mal-adaptively addressing things. How difficult in your community is it to get people interested in those, what we'd call behavioral health services? Because sometimes there's kind of a stigma, like, you know, I'm, I'm okay, I don't need that. Is it a tough sell in, uh, in your nation?
3: I think more and more um, awareness is coming to the need for services um, for depression, for anxiety, um, suicide prevention. Our tribe has been um, working really hard to get the stigma removed from behavioral health services. So um, they do a lot in the community just to promote um, how it's okay to seek help.
1: Wow. You know, I don't say this to every guest. But I'm just really excited about what you're doing.
3: Well, thank you. I'm excited, too. I
1: I got this tip off that you were going to be a great guest. And I'm I'm always glad when those tips come true. I have over the years. We've been doing this show for some 15 years. Sometimes we'll get someone who we think is just going to have a great message for Indian country. And I'm sitting there listening. And I'm trying to say, well, how can we bring this to practical point? I mean, something that people will resonate with. and, And I think you really spoke to us because this idea of not just looking at diabetes in isolation, even though you've got a dedicated team to do it, you're saying, we've got to look at it within the context of, you know, that native value of looking at the whole community, the whole person, the whole environment. So it's really exciting. So one more time, Garika, if someone wants to get more information about what you're doing and others there with the Muscogee Creek Nation, how do they do it?
3: Well, they can visit um, our website at creekhealth.org.
1: Okay creekhealth.org. Thanks so much. We've got to step away. We'll be back with one more exciting guest before we close out the show. You don't want to miss it. We'll be back right after this.
0: Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. One day, I'll teach chemistry to kids.
4: I'm going to be an architect.
0: My dream is to be a chef.
4: At the U.S. Department of Education's Office of Federal Student Aid, we provide more than $150 billion each year in grants, loans, and work-study funds, making higher education possible for anyone at any stage of life. I can go back to college. I can change careers. I can make a difference. Federal Student Aid, proud sponsor of The American Mind. Learn more about money for college at studentaid.gov. Diabetes is a serious disease that runs in families. If your parents or siblings have type 2 diabetes, you have a greater chance of getting the disease. If you're African American, Hispanic, or Latino, American Indian, Alaska Native, Asian American, Native Hawaiian, or Pacific Islander, you also have a higher chance of developing the disease. The National Diabetes Education Program wants to help you understand your risk. Visit the NDEP website at yourdiabetesinfo.org for diabetes prevention tools, including the Family Health History Quiz.
3: It started off as a normal day.
4: I felt fine when I arrived at the plant.
5: Ruth Junius's life was about to change.
3: Then I dropped my keys. They kept slipping out of my hand. My arm felt numb. A co-worker asked me if I was okay, and I couldn't speak. I started to get scared.
5: Ruth was having a stroke. People around her weren't sure what to do.
3: They thought I should go home or lie down, but I knew something was very wrong. I wrote 911 on a piece of paper with my other hand, and someone called for me.
5: Because everyone acted quickly, doctors at the hospital were able to give Ruth treatment that started to reverse the symptoms.
3: Within a few minutes, I was talking again. I didn't know a thing about stroke before I had one. Now I make sure that my friends and family know all the signs of stroke so they'll get help fast if they need it.
5: No stroke. Know the signs. Act in time. Call 1-800-352-9424 for more information. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, National Institutes of Health. You're listening to Dr.
0: David DeRose on American Indian Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE, 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose.
1: Welcome back to American Indian Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose. We're in our final segment of today's show that we're recording from this exciting venue in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. And across from me is another guest who's making a difference in Indian country. It's Esther Farley, another registered nurse. Esther, great to have you with us. Thank you. We just had a registered nurse speaking about diabetes and her work with the Muscogee Creek Nation, and uh, we heard some exciting things about that. You, I know, are working right now kind of on the other end of the spectrum because you're an oncology-certified nurse. That means you work in the realm of cancer, right? Right. Right. But the reason I have you on the show is because I've had a little opportunity to get acquainted with you. You're sitting right across from us, offering health screenings to the attendees here. And uh, I learned about an interesting, well, an interesting thing we have in common. Many years ago, I became acquainted with a little book called The Ministry of Healing, written back in 1905. And that book gave me a picture of health that really, I would say, was one of the things that ultimately inspired me to go into medicine. Now, I learned from you that you, too, read that book, <laughs> and it impacted yep. you. To Tell me a little bit about what decisions you made based on reading that.
6: Well, um, I was in high school, and I had a job working as a nurse's aide. Of course, nowadays, kids can't do that as much. Um, And I said, I will never be a nurse. But at the same time, for whatever reason, I chose to read the Ministry of Healing in my personal time. It was actually as partially as a devotional. Mm -hmm. And um, I read through the book gradually, just a few pages every day. And um, it has so much help for daily living Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. and spiritual encouragement. But it also talks very clearly about um how to minister to others in the area of health. And by the time I'd read that and I was becoming a senior, I just felt that what I should do in college was do something with health. I didn't, people told me I ought to be a doctor, but I said, no, I don't want to do that. So I decided to go into more of a health and wellness area.
1: Very good, I mean this is an exciting story, and you know for those of you who've never heard of the book, the Ministry of healing it 's an amazing book, like I said, it was written well over a hundred years ago, and still in print yes they 're still selling thousands of books and You might find this interesting, Esther, but when I was teaching in the community college system in Maine, I was teaching pre health professional students, and I would typically offer them that book as a gift mm-hmm. at the end of the school year at the end of the semester. Because, uh, I mean, for example, I mean, who would have thought that there were people writing against the harms of addictive commercial tobacco in 1905? But it's in that book. Yep. The benefits of a plant-based diet. We just had uh, Garricka uh, Bateman, uh, who I alluded to earlier, she was speaking about how they're using more plant-based choices in the Muscogee Creek Nation to help Turn back the clock on diabetes. Well, that's in that book. Yes. Okay. I mean, it's just amazing.
6: And how to help people in a what most people would think a psychological, spiritual realm also very much is clearly in that book too. And how to relate to people. I think that that is very nicely put there.
1: No, it is so huge. In fact, to this day, in my clinical practice, I keep copies of the Ministry of Healing in my office. And often when people are dealing with special areas of stress, Mm -hmm. there's a couple of chapters toward the end of the book. One of them is called Help in Daily Living, another in Contact with Others. I'll say you need to read this one chapter. So even if it's a longer book, but you know, read this chapter because like you said, just a lot of practical counsel on how to interact with people.
6: Yeah, definitely.
1: So, I read that book. It inspired me as far as the opportunities of medical service. It inspired you. I end up a physician. You end up a registered nurse. Now we're here in Oklahoma City at this uh, National Indian Health Board-sponsored conference, and we're doing things to give back your screening. And it's an interesting role, I mean, I, for an oncology nurse. I mean, usually people think of <laughs> oncology, cancer. A lot of people think, well, wow, that's the end of the road, but it's not really that way at all, right? There's a lot of people. More a lot and more of people recover. Yeah. So, tell us from an oncology nurse's perspective. You've got this holistic perspective. You come out of this background where you're reading these inspiring books. And in fact, I probably should mention, because I'm sitting here. If people have come to the booth, and they're listening to this show because it's pre-recorded, they're listening. They were here in Oklahoma City. They likely got uh, our American Indian Living magazine in their uh, uh, registration materials. And if they page through that magazine, they would see that there's actually an institution advertised in the magazine that is actually based on the same book we've been talking about, the Ministry of Healing. In fact, in the Ministry of Healing, it talks about eight natural therapies for health. And Weimar Institute in Northern California, where I was on staff for uh, some years, and where I learned you were a student, right? Yes, Uh, and staff. And staff. Um, Weimar Institute, they actually have a name for their program, and they call that program New Start. And the New Start stands for those eight elements that come out of the book, The Ministry of Healing. So we want to talk a little bit about lessons for people at the end of life, Mm -hmm. or um, maybe I should put it this way. As we've said, cancer is not the end of life for many people, but... When people have the diagnosis of cancer, their thoughts often go to end-of-life issues. In fact, you may have had this um, same experience that I've had over the years where you hear from people that survived cancer, and they say, well, that was one of the best things that happened to me. It helped me to appreciate my life, and we you know what's really important, things like that. But before we go there, just a few insights from an oncology nurse, I want you to tell me a little bit about... Weimar and the New Start program when you were there, and uh, this is going back a few years, I realized, but did it embody those principles in that book, Ministry of Healing, that you read?
6: Definitely, definitely. Um, those eight natural remedies are things that I made part of my practice in life. I already had followed a lot of that. Good nutrition, exercise, water, sunshine, temperance, air, rest, and trust. And find that when those are in balance, we're in much better health. And when I have opportunity to share that with others, I think that even cancer and other things can come in when we are not in balance Mm -hmm. in those areas. Mm -hmm. Sure, there's genetics and environmental factors that play, but keeping those things in balance can help our lives be in better health. I've observed those who make these principles a part of their daily life live healthier and happier, just overall, so much happier, just healthier, where you feel like you like life so much longer in life, mm-hmm. observed.
1: Well, I didn't come to this conference planning to do a show talking about the Ministry of Healing, the book, but uh, our dialogue just led to that. <laughs> and if you are listening today and you've never heard of the Ministry of Healing, look it up. You can get it inexpensively online. If you're in financial duress, we'll track one of us down, track me down, at uh, Doctor DeRose at compasshealth.net and I'm sure we could get you a copy of the book Ministry of Healing but before we step away we did want a few insights from you a few words of encouragement uh, Esther for those who may be dealing with that diagnosis of cancer can you share some some positive notes?
6: Well you want to have a good doctor team to work mm-hmm. with but also having your Can I say, having your affairs in order, Hmm. you can rest and be at peace and live much longer.
1: Wow. Isn't that interesting?
6: (laughs) You know, when, when you accept what's happening, I think, I think denial makes things more difficult. Um, and, and recognizing it's, it's tough and not being afraid to go through those stages of grief of the, of, Hey, accepting what's going on in life and then, Being free to accept maybe a different outlook or outcome in life than you expected. And it may be something quite different than what you think Mm. might happen.
1: I love your point because I was reading some years ago a researcher who was looking at prayer in the context of cancer and a lot of people say, "Oh, you need to pray that your white blood cells will kill the cancer." And all when they, when they actually looked at, you know, what kind of prayers to a creator are the most powerful in the context of cancer, mm-hmm. they found that it was prayers of acceptance. You know, of someone being, you know, uh, letting the creator, you know, have his will in their life. So this very idea that you're sharing with us that they could could rest and in something beyond themselves. And that had the best correlation with healing, rather than, you know, we're going to beat this and I'm going to pray for strength and, and all that. It's a very, very interesting observation.
6: Surrender is a very in- interesting thing to study.
1: It really is. Boy, I wish I had got you on at the beginning of the show because we could have done a whole show together. But we'll see what happens. Maybe we'll get another chance to talk. But for now, our time has slipped away from us, Esther. Thank you for allowing me to pull you away from the Health Screening Booth and joining me here on American Indian Living.
6: that's my pleasure.
1: And thank you to all of you who've tuned in today. We do have to go, but from the National Indian Health Board and their conference in Oklahoma City, I'm Dr. David DeRose. For all of us, wishing you the very best of health.
3: Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.